Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have another installment of Freeway Philharmonic. On this episode, we'll be featuring Jamie Whitmarsh. I've known Jamie since we were freshmen at Oklahoma City University in 2006, and we have been best friends ever since. Jamie is one of the hardest working people that I know, and I knew he would be perfect for this series. In addition to his work ethic, he just genuinely cares about the people around him, and he works really hard to try to make things better for them. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to make everyone aware that at the end of the episode, I'm going to play the first movement of a song cycle that Jamie wrote for me that I recorded on a CD. We both thought that it would be a cool way to feature some of the work that Jamie and I have done together. Uh, At the time that I am writing this right now, I do not know when it will be released, but I'm sure that I will post about it on social media whenever I figure that out. All right, let's get back to the episode. We began Jamie's interview with me asking him about all the freelancing that he is currently doing right now. So I... I teach at Oklahoma City University. I teach composition there. And I occasionally travel to Lebanon and teach composition there as well for the Yes Academy, which is put on by American Voices, basically bringing American music and American pedagogy all around the world. And I also teach composition lessons remotely and sometimes in person with students here in OKC. So most of my teaching right now is composition-based. I've taught percussion quite a bit over the last few years, but most of my students have graduated or I'm not working at that institution anymore, so I don't really teach much percussion right now. I have one student, and um, she's a retiree. Oh, nice. She's cool. (laughs) Yeah. So not much percussion teaching right now, mostly composition. Uh, For performing... I perform a fair amount, sometimes for community groups like the Frontier Brass Band and playing with them in September, sometimes for actual gigging groups and playing with the Norman Phil uh, off and on. And I have a trial week with the Oklahoma City Philharmonic in September on timpani. So after that, we'll see kind of where things land and maybe I'll be playing with them more or Maybe not. I've been subbing with them some for the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, okay. Odds and gigs. Yeah, odds and gigs that pop up, you know, playing at churches or, you know, whatever kind of stuff you need to do. And as a composer, I do a lot of arranging for marching band. I write commissions, obviously, of concert music. I have a piece being premiered at PASIC in November by Troy University. It's a percussion octet with really weird instrumentation, like hand pans and saw blades. And <laughs> nice. Pipe, <laughs> yeah. So I think that, oh, and then I guess lastly, I do, uh, with I have the Oklahoma Modern Music Collective. And so this is an organization that we recently 
founded in like February of 19, and we're currently waiting to hear back about our 501c3 status. But basically, at the Oklahoma Modern Music Collective, we believe that the music being written now is accessible to everyone and can be relatable to everyone, even if they've never been to a concert before. So it's our goal to bring new people into our world. You think about there are a lot of people out there who love jazz, and they aren't necessarily musically trained. They just like jazz, or there are people who are guitar enthusiasts or something, and, you know, their day job isn't music. They're not trained in music, but they just like the guitar. They pick up the guitar and play it, or they collect guitars or whatever. And so I don't see any reason why people can't identify as new music enthusiasts, why yeah. there can't be people out there who are non-musically trained, maybe, but uh, see the worth and the value and, and enjoy the aesthetic of new music. And there's so much different new music out there that uh, it's, I think it's pretty much impossible for someone to not like new music. They just have to hear the right piece. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. So, so yeah, this organization you're asking about, like what kind of freelancing and stuff I do. So within this, I have a clarinet and percussion duo that performs, Duo Virginia, a percussion ensemble collective called Great Plains Percussion Group with percussionists from Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas. And then uh, the Oklahoma Composers Orchestra, which I conduct, and that's a new music orchestra, basically all dedicated to music by living composers. Next, I asked Jamie how long it took for him to build enough work to support himself freelancing in Oklahoma City. Sure. So when when we were en route from Tallahassee, we had a place set up to sublet. And then while we were driving back with all of our stuff and all of our cats in our cars and stuff, we, we the person we were going to sublet from let us know that the, no, no animals were allowed. And so we were like, well, we can't sublet your place. Uh, and within a couple hours, I found another place to stay it's because I'm from Oklahoma and I knew someone uh, that I went to school with and she had a house and needed you know, had an open room, and so it, we just went to her place instead and then moved in there. <laughs> and uh, that night I got called to play with a Frontier Brass Band at some low brass convention thing a couple weeks later. And so, you know, it kind of showed me that moving back to OKC was the right move, at least for me at that time, because of the connections that I had there as an undergraduate. You know, a lot of those people were still around in some capacity or another, and uh, over time, that first year, you know, people see that you're around. So, like, there's, like, that idea that when you're in a new place, it takes about three years. I don't remember who told me this. Maybe might have been Brian Nazi. Uh, but he said that it takes three years for, for things to really settle. So the first year, you're new somewhere, and people, you're just meeting people, and you're just kind of – around for things and people are like who's that and you're like i'm i'm also a percussionist and then your second year people are like oh this person's sticking around and you start getting some gigs and and then by your third year you start getting those gigs again and you start you know some other people move away or whatever and you start to be you know you're part of the community now but it might take three years to really be part of the community and uh because i was coming back somewhere that i'd already been part of the community i think that was a lot easier to to manage. I know that moving to a new city and starting up a freelance career can be tough, 
So I asked Jamie how he managed to stay motivated during his first and second years there when he might not have had as much freelancing work. Yeah, so that first year back, like I said, I, I got into town and then got a gig. It was a you know a, a non-paying gig, but it was fun and it was a conference and it was just a cool group to play with. So it was it was nice, and of course it gets you playing with people, and then they see that you're playing, and if they like you're playing, they need something for later. They might ask you to play. And so I think what happened was, it's kind of funny. I was sitting in, in the house that we were staying at. My friend Tony, she owns a house, and we were renting a room from her, and I was in the front room. And I just thought, you know, I should text this season. And so I wrote on Facebook, does anybody need a front ensemble set for this marching season? And then she came out of her room <laughs> and was like, hey, we need a front ensemble set at UConn. Are, you know, are you available? And I was like, yeah. So it just kind of was like serendipitous, like, yeah, okay, cool. So I felt like I got really lucky my first year back that a lot of people I knew were still around and uh, not all of them hated me, I guess. And so they were willing to work with me and that was really nice. So, you know, from the front ensemble tech position, then I got some students at UConn. I started working at Oakdale middle school in Edmond and I, I would do percussion a couple of days a week and then teach lessons there. And so I was able to stay afloat teaching lessons and, you know, the occasional gig I would play for, uh, I would sub for maybe crossings community church or something or play for an you know, Easter gig or kind of whatever was, was around. And I was working with a percussion ensemble at UConn. And then I think I was playing bass guitar for the OCU percussion ensemble. And then uh, that. March, I think, I met with the dean at OCU, and we we talked about uh, me teaching there the next year with orchestration and, and music fundamentals and composition. So that that three-year thing I was saying kind of got compressed into, into one. But I also, I should say that while I was in Tallahassee, every summer I was back in OKC. Every summer I was teaching at the OCU percussion camp, and then also there's a music theater camp every summer for high school students we have to take theory acting and dance classes every morning and so there's three groups of kids one hour each so three hours of theory every morning for like five weeks so every summer i was back for two months or more and so i think that helped keep some things alive because i wasn't just gone for four years and then right. back i right. was back back and on in the summer of 2007, while Jamie was still in undergraduate school at Oklahoma City University, he worked full-time at a 7-Eleven gas station. When he reminded me of this, I wanted to ask his opinion on how he was able to keep working on music and stay motivated while he was working so many hours during the day. I've known a few people who got a day job to support themselves while they were trying to build a musical career in a new city, but they would feel at the end of the day, they would be so tired from a full day of work that it was hard to find the motivation to practice and to work on musical endeavors. Here's what Jamie's thoughts on that were. Yeah, so, you know, my my absolute sort of worst backup plan was getting some kind of non-music day job where I can work there and then come home and do what I consider as my work, you know. And then sort of the second worst or whatever was something where I teach 40 hours of private lessons and then come home and hopefully do my work. The, the thing about a non-musical day job, I, I think 
sometimes people go through school and they get their music degree and then they get out and they have to work at their father's shop or something, or they work, you know, at Best Buy, whatever. And they, they feel ashamed about that. But I think that you don't need to feel ashamed about doing whatever you're doing to get by. If you wind up being content, not happy, this happy is a silly thing to look for, but if you wind up being content, working 40 hours a week at Best Buy and then composing in the evenings or composing on the weekends or performing or whatever, then that's great. That's success for you. Uh, for me, it was never my long-term plan to work a non-musical job. It was a, I could do this for a year or two while I amass contacts with people and I get gigs going and I find students and stuff like that. So it was never really a final plan for me. It was just, a, if I need to, I'll go get a job at Best Buy. That's fine. I work part-time there while doing other stuff. That's okay with me. I wanted to dig a little deeper and see if Jamie had specific advice to people who may feel that getting a non-musical day job after graduating might not be right for them. Although I haven't experienced it myself, I can imagine getting a day job might feel like you're kind of saying to yourself, I can't make this work, I'm not good enough, I have to give up trying and get a real job. But here's what Jamie had to say about that. Right, so, you know, I should sort of annotate here that I think 7-Eleven is the last non-musical job that I had. So it was during my bachelor's. So, you know, I always thought it was a temporary thing. And so mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, I guess, and I never thought I'll work at Best Buy for the rest of my career and then compose on the side. But it was sort of like, if we're having a tough year, that's not the end of the world, you know? Right, right. So I think it has to do with energy. So, you know, my first year back in Oklahoma, I was driving around. I was teaching a lot. And, you know, able to support myself, which was great. I mean, that was the, that was the goal, you know. But for me, I would rather be doing something than driving to go do something. So I eventually the driving 30 minutes to my next thing and then 30 minutes to my next thing kind of wore, wore down on me. And also the tracking of my students and whether they had paid me also started to wear down on me, clerical sort of thing. So yeah. I'd rather be playing or writing or teaching, but I don't really like all the other stuff that you have to do to do those things, which is fine. But the advantage of something like Seven Eleven or whatever your day job of choice is, is that you don't have to think about music. You don't have to put your creative juices into it. You can show up at Seven Eleven and try to stop people from stealing things and stock the shelves and and whatever, and then you're done, and you had all these ideas for music to write, you know, or you've been seeing if you have that Bach cello suite really memorized, and those sort of things. So then you're excited to go to your instrument, whereas if I'm driving around and I'm teaching, I'm always kind of on, I'm always thinking, and it's always about music. So after, you know, teaching eight hours a day or teaching four hours a day and driving four hours a day or whatever, I'm not really enthused to come home and then let me write a piece or let me, you know, I'll do it, but it's not the same sort of release that it might be when you have a day job. So the advantage, I think, to a non-musical job is that you can clearly separate the things that you do and that matter to you. You know, it's like if you work construction all day, like, are you going to come home and hit the gym? Maybe not, you know. Right. It's probably the last thing you want to do. 
I'm really glad Jamie expanded upon that. I hadn't really considered that working a non-musical job could possibly make you more motivated to work on your craft because you aren't surrounded by it all day. It's definitely an interesting perspective, and I'm really glad he shared. Shifting gears, I focused on asking Jamie how he manages all of the different things he has to do during the day. I myself am always looking to learn new time management solutions, and since he seems to be able to get a ton of stuff accomplished each day, I thought I'd ask him how he does it. You know, you you hear interviews with people who freelance, and, you know, we talk about the grind, and we talk about sort of being relentless and always going and always on, and I feel like that can be kind of discouraging because it sounds like this awful, terrible thing. But something I've kind of realized about myself, and I'm not sure if it's totally true, but I think there's some kernel to it, is I think I'm actually kind of a lazy person, or maybe not lazy, but I just want to chill. That's all I want to do in my life is just chill. If I lived at a beach and just chilled and played video games and like practiced when I wanted and stuff, I'd probably be really happy. Maybe my soul wouldn't be totally satisfied, but I I just feel like, yeah, let's just relax and chill. And so knowing that, I think what I have to do is make sure that I have a million things going on. So right now, you know, I taught a couple hours at OCU today. I come home, I eat a bagel, and then I come home and I'm working on marching band. I want to make sure that I can get this movement done today to send to the school, right? And then I have another school that I'd like to at least get going on something for them today. And then I also edited a video together of an old GPPG performance that I want to send to the guys and see if we can get that out there. And then I've got a whole 16 category to-do list that's my background on my PC. So that way, if I ever am like, yeah, whatever, I'm done. I've done enough for today. I'm like, well, let me edit this website a little bit, or let me send some emails or whatever. So, By making sure that I'm never actually done, it keeps me going and it keeps me working. And I think that year in Tallahassee, I had music I was working on, I had pieces I was writing, and I had marching band I was doing, and I had some students I was teaching. But I was not jam-packed at all. I definitely had a lot of time to just be depressed, you know, to just sit there and be like, I wonder how that piece sounds that I just sent off. Like, I won't get to hear it because I just sent it off. And that's the end of my relationship with that piece for now. Or I was doing a bunch of arrangements and I would send them and then couldn't hear them. You know, they couldn't record it due to, you know, union rules and, and such, which is important for musicians to be compensated and, and so forth, you know. So it's not a problem, but it definitely was depressing. And so for me, it's making sure that I always have something else coming up and that I'm always taking another step forward in some direction. That's the only way I know how to be successful for myself. Jamie's process of staying busy to keep himself working may work for him, but I know there are people out there that feel very much the opposite of that. If they have too many things on their plate, they feel overwhelmed and find it hard to do any of the things they need to do. 
I asked Jamie if he has always felt like being super busy was helpful, or maybe if there was some sort of trigger event that motivated him to adapt that type of process. So I think you said something really helpful with that, which is keep working. There's something really important about momentum. And to illustrate that, this week, this is the first semester that I really feel like I'm firing on all cylinders and that I'm, I'm about to enter a new phase because my schedule is I teach for a couple hours in the morning. I start at 8 every day, which is awesome because that's my first class. So I'm usually up at like 6 or something. And then the rest of the day, I have certain things I need to do. And it's awesome because I'm getting things done at a rate that I've never done before. Now, back up a week where I just got back from teaching a couple weeks in Lebanon, I'm kind of in a middle point where I just finished this big thing. I have another big thing starting, you know, on Monday and I'm in this middle part and it was really hard to get going. You know, I was putting out fires. I was like, they need to have this by tomorrow. I'm sending it to them. You know, I need to, I'm brainstorming ideas for this piece or whatever, but the real sort of fire wasn't there because there's this sort of pause button I feel like I'm on. So starting is really hard. I think when you have all of these things that you have to do and you haven't started on them, that's debilitating. But keeping going is okay. Once I'm in the zone and I'm working every day on something, I'm doing it. And that's the hope is that this year, in the past, what I've always done is it's putting out fires for everything. And then I've had brief windows where for a week I can work on, you know, marching band arranging every day and I get so much done, or I can practice an hour every day consistently at the same time, and I get so much done. So keeping the momentum going is kind of how that works. So the discipline sort of comes just from, it's like, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to decide. I'm just like, that's the next thing I need to do. I don't have to pick myself up to do it. I'm already up and I'm already going. Jamie's process sounds a lot like the law of inertia to me which is that objects in motion will stay in motion. I know there's more to it than that, like they aren't going to stay in motion if it's acted on by other forces, but simply saying objects in motion will stay in motion sounds pretty cool, and it fits my narrative, so that's what we're going with. The next thing I asked Jamie was if he scheduled out his time. For many people, scheduling out specific times to accomplish specific goals could be a powerful tool for productivity, and I was just curious if he had any experience with that level of organization. So I have like an unofficial list of things that I got to do every day. Like it's important to me that I practice every day, even if it's just do some pad and watch Netflix. You know, that's something. And it's important to me that I make strides in my arranging or my composition. Uh, it's important to me that I at least think about any sort of email stuff or administrative things I need to do every day. And I like to go to the gym every day. As long as I do some of all of those things or whatever, then I'm good. And so I, it is kind of like, what do I feel like doing, you know, or what's most pressing? And then I just go with that. You do get to a point where, you know, I'm working on arranging and there's this, this sort of switch where it's like, okay, that's as productive as I'm going to be on that right now. Maybe later I'll do more, but if I were going to sit here and say I'm going to keep, no, I have to finish this, I'm going to keep arranging, you know, diminishing returns. I can spend two more hours and get what's essentially 10 more minutes of work done, or I can spend those two hours on something else. 
and even just taking a 30-minute break, I will be much more productive when I come back to whatever I'm doing. Jamie just touched on something that I think is really valuable. We all have a threshold of what we are capable of doing at a high level of focus. Making sure you aren't crossing that threshold too often ensures that the work that you do will be productive. Working into the point where you have diminishing returns in focus means that you won't be able to get as much quality out of the time you spend working. I'm a believer, though, that we have the ability to gradually build up the ability to focus more and more over time, and I asked Jamie if he agreed with that. I think you can, and it depends, too, on the deadlines really matter a lot. Um, I did a 48-hour film project a couple weeks ago, or maybe like a month ago now, where basically what happens is on Friday night, the team is, your team is given a choice between genres and then a character, prop, and line of dialogue. Every team has to use those those things in their film. And so you're given this stuff, you choose your genre, and then between 7 p.m. on Friday and 7 p.m. on Sunday, you write, film, edit, and in some cases score the movie from scratch. And so last year when I did it, I was playing a show, and so I would get out. I got out like 10 on Friday and then met my team. I didn't know any of them. And we talked about it, and they kind of gave me an overview. And then I wrote some ideas down and went to bed. And then the next day, sent some more stuff. And we kind of went back and forth like that. And I did most of my work on Sunday because that's when the film was locked, and I could actually score and record everything. So I thought that was going to happen this year. So on the Friday, we were moving, and so I spent like 10 hours moving my studio to our new house, getting it set up so that I could work that weekend. And I meet my team. I've met them before, but I go to meet them on Friday night. It's like eight. And the genre was musical. And so that is the opposite workflow. Now I have to do everything Friday night. So I was pretty exhausted. And I wouldn't normally want to do that kind of thing. But I just got a Red Bull, got some like <laughs> pepper chips, and sat down in my studio and was like, let's do this now. And I wrote until three. I wrote a bunch of songs and then met with the director at six. AM and then recorded the musicians from seven to 10 and then edited everything and sent it along the way so that they could film to those songs and lip sync and match it up and stuff like that. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I, you know, wouldn't normally work like that. I would, you know, I definitely had some moments where I was like, can I, am I going to be able to do this? But you know, those are the times that you push yourself past what you've got. And so then on Saturday, I took the rest of Saturday off, you know, because I borrowed from my future reserves, you know. Right. And then had to replenish. And then Sunday, you know, kind of cleaned up all the audio and things and made sure that it was really, you know, re-recorded instrumental parts and things like that and touched up the vocal stuff, you know, just made it sound more polished. I made mention that it sounds like in a perfect world, smaller chunks where you can maximize your focus is optimal, but life doesn't always work out like that. Being able to succeed in less than optimal circumstances is important. And it also sounds like knowing that would be a really good thing to know about yourself, that you can succeed in those kinds of conditions. Yeah, I think if you can only work one way, I mean, you need to make sure that you set up your environment to always allow you to work that way. But most of the time as a musician and, and any kind of creative you know, you have to work in situations that are not optimal and that are not best for you at all. Right. You know, maybe that's what college is, is it's a bunch of suboptimal situations where you have to produce and find a way to make this thing happen. 
and then maybe that's the training for, for life. When Jamie was discussing how he always tries to stay busy, I noted that in order to stay busy, you have to have a high level of creativity to continue coming up with ideas to execute. Some of the things he does are recurring, like his work on marching band shows or his percussion and composition lessons. But using one of the creative ideas that Jamie has had, the Oklahoma Composers Orchestra, I wanted to dig in about what made Jamie work so hard on projects like these that didn't make him any financial gain and why they were so important to him. Right. Um, well, you know, over time, your philosophy as an artist and as a musician and as a human develops. And so the first time I did this was in Tallahassee and my master's, uh, another composer and I put together the Tallahassee Composers Orchestra and we had two concerts. And our goal was to get our music played. You know, we wanted to hear our music. We wanted to write with this group. We wanted to have our friends in the area and play their music. You know, we, we just wanted to get a group together to play our music. And we had two concerts, and then that was that. So when I moved to Oklahoma, I thought, you know, we put a lot of effort into the Tallahassee one, but I have no home base in Tallahassee. I'm not going to go back there and recruit players and stuff like that. But in Oklahoma, no matter what, I've got friends here, uh, former teachers, you know, colleagues, all this stuff. It'll always be here, and I'll always have ties here. So it's worth building something because at some point it can be self-sustaining. And so I thought, let's do this. And then I, I also thought, I don't want to create something that is just for me and my music uh, because there's a lot of great music out there, and I don't think – you know, Jennifer Higgin doesn't need me to program her music. She's getting her stuff all over the place, you know. But someone in the Oklahoma community who's a composer does. Or uh, something like our last concert was Around the World in 60 Minutes. We had a piece from each continent except for Antarctica. And some of these composers said they never had maybe a piece performed or an orchestral piece for sure performed. And I think three of the pieces were world premieres and – a couple of them were United States premieres. And that kind of stuff is important because when you program music, you program what you know. You know, I can think of if I were I had an orchestra that was not just a new music orchestra, but it was like a, we are the whatever symphony orchestra for this place. And we need to make sure we program classics and stuff. You know, I have Beethoven symphonies that I'm like, well, let's do that. You know, or Mahler. You know, you program what you know that you love. And with so many of the new composers that are out there and so many living composers, they guarantee you there is an orchestral piece out there somewhere that would grab me more than Mahler 1. Something out there that I would love more than Mahler 1. I just haven't heard it yet, and I don't know it. And until I hear it and then love it, I'm not going to program it. So hopefully with something like this, we're able to expose people to new pieces, we're able to bring new pieces alive. And for those composers, they then have a record of it that they can help with getting it out there. And uh, yeah, so I, I look at something like that as kind of like a, a service, which sounds sort of like I'm elevating 
my role or something, but really it is a service for the composers, a service for the audience, because all of a sudden people are hearing music that they've never heard that I think there's a piece guaranteed on every program that everyone's going to love at least one piece, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and for the musicians, because you're playing music that has never been heard. You're playing music that introduces you to things that concepts that you haven't necessarily encountered before and gives you sort of life, you know, there's that sort of stereotype of maybe career orchestral musicians who are playing Mahler one for the 10th time. And maybe the magic is not there anymore. And so our concerts are all magic because it's fleeting. It's here you go. This piece may never get played again. For all we know, this might be the only time in the universe this piece gets hurt. Even though I've known about the composer concerts that Jamie has been a part of for a while now, I've never actually gotten to hear Jamie talk about why he works so hard on them. To hear the type of value that he is able to create for musicians, composers, and an audience is just very inspiring to me. Maybe some of you listening are inspired as well, so I asked Jamie to elaborate on what kind of work goes into putting on one of these concerts in case you might want to do it yourself. Yeah, so the first one we did was January 2016. And I think first I sort of asked people that I knew. I said, hey, you know, you play trombone. Do you want to play in this thing? We're putting it together in a couple of months. It's going to be really cool. We can't pay, but it's going to be a fun time. We're going to have a, a good time doing it. So I think the first thing would be find a conductor that cares about musicians and their schedules. Because I may not be the most convincing conductor or something. I don't know. You know, I don't have a ton of training as a conductor. But one thing I I try to be very clear, and I also absolutely respect the musician's time. No, we are not a union orchestra. Like, we don't have to end exactly at 930 when our schedule says. But as far as I'm concerned, we absolutely have to. It is their time that I'm borrowing to collaborate and hopefully bring something that is synergetic and transcends the amount of time we spent on it. It's, it's worth more than that. I quickly interrupted Jamie to ask him what the size of the orchestra was for the first concert that he did. That first concert, we had five horns, we had three trombones, we had three trumpets, we had like 600 percussionists, I don't know, we had a bunch. Um, I think we had 11 total violins and two or three violas and two or three cellos and two or three basses and then normal woodwinds. The strings had been a problem at first. I mean, the thing is we got great players, so it sounds fuller because they play really well together. So that's good. But, you know, there is a difference when you have 30 winds and you have 20 strings. You know, it needs to be more balanced. And then lately it's gotten a lot better because, we have a personnel manager who is a string player and Gus Weaver. If you're listening, Hey Gus, thanks for all you do. Um, He now can contact people. He knows he can also interface with our players. He can follow up with them and it's not me doing all of it. Now I can still do my recruiting that I do and talk to people and follow up with people, but he can keep track of it. He can, Um, help make sure that the communication being sent out is consistent and clear and things like that while I'm thinking about venues and I'm thinking about marketing and I'm thinking about programming and all of this stuff and organizing things on the Google Drive and all that stuff. So I would say if you're going to do this, 
find a conductor that people want to work with that doesn't have a reputation of being a jerk and find a venue and a date that works for the musicians. If you schedule a concert that conflicts with an event that most of the musicians in the community are going to be involved with, then not only are you cutting out a lot of possible players, but you're also indicating that you don't care about that other thing. You know, like we don't schedule against the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. We don't schedule against OCU or OU or UCO's orchestra concerts because we want to make it clear that people should go to those things. And we're not going to take away audience members from that. We're going to encourage people to go to those things. I think it's important that you don't just take people's resources and take people's time, but that you give it back as well. To close out this interview, I actually asked Jamie the question, who are you to do all this stuff? (laughs) It sounds like such a horrible question, but all I really meant was that he doesn't really have any official qualifications that make him a good candidate for starting an ensemble, being in charge of marketing, conducting the ensemble, and things like that. He has the same degrees that many of us have, yet he is going above and beyond what he is, quote, supposed to be doing and venturing into ideas that are fresh and new. I wanted his thoughts on why he thought he was qualified to start this project and other projects like it. Well, so I'll say a couple things. First, like I wasn't a conductor until I was. You know, so I had some training in my bachelor's degree. I I think I did two years of conducting seminar after the required courses and a couple of classes at FSU. Um, but when I meet people, I'm not, I hey, I'm a conductor. I'm, I'm like, I'm a composer, I guess, and a percussionist and I have cats, you know. And I think that I just decided, you know, I did some teaching and conducting percussion ensembles and stuff. So I was comfortable being a conductor. And then I just conducted for a bunch of other student composers and stuff. And I, I just was like, yeah, I can do that. Why not? I mean, why why not me? No one you're not a professional until someone tells you a professional. You're not a performer until you start performing, you know. And so I looked at it like that that as long as I'm not tanking this thing, then I can keep doing it, you know, and hopefully getting better and, you know, learning and developing and uh, brutally honest Google surveys that people can give feedback on the rehearsal and performance process to you are helpful. They're anonymous and so people will let you know. And you just take that feedback and you keep getting better at it. And I think that's the thing that I think allows me to do this because it's hard. Uh, It is something that is very difficult to say, we're going to put an orchestra together and can you come play with us? And we're going to bring composers out. We're going to do all this stuff and convince people who have space that, yeah, this is something we're doing. I mean, it's a lot of work. But I think if you believe in it and you believe that the end result and end outcome is a net positive, then, you know, I I don't think I could do all of it forever by myself. But assuming that, you know, it keeps going and more people keep jumping in and helping and and so forth, it starts to work itself. The last couple of concerts, having Gus has been helpful, and also a lot of the same people are coming back and playing each time. So that's a bunch of work that I don't have to keep doing. I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. I've had a couple concerts at OU, at OCU, and the administration has been very supportive of that. And so I don't have to fight a battle to get that to happen and so forth, you know. So it's like pushing a rock kind of, but it's momentum. 
it gains a little bit of momentum, and then it's a little bit easier each time. It's never easy, but it's a little easier. And the result and the benefit is the same. Like, it was worth doing once, and it was really hard. And then next time, it's a little easier maybe. It's still hard, but it's just as worth doing. And so the benefit keeps getting better. The benefit-to-work ratio keeps getting skewed more favorably. What Jamie was talking about here reminded me of his earlier comment about his work in general. The way he talks about each concert getting a little easier to manage because of forward momentum sounds a lot like the way he described how he prefers to work in general. Yes, and you know, you said, like, who am I to do this? I'm comfortable failing publicly. Like, I'm, I'm fine with that. I uh, was always the new kid growing up, and so I just got used to oh, yeah, things aren't really working out for me. Like, I would meet kids, and I yell when I talk pretty much, and I'd say weird stuff because I have a really active imagination. So I just got used to, oh, I'm the weird new kid. And so for me, to say I'm putting an orchestra together, hopefully it works out. And if it doesn't and it winds up fizzling out, I mean, that's unfortunate, but that's the risk you take, and I I am – going to survive it, you know, it's not the end of the world. So it's worth trying, even if it doesn't work out. Um, If someone's listening and they're thinking about doing this, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to give any thoughts about things that worked or didn't work. Um, You can also, you know, start with an orchestra. You can start with a chamber music series or something to get people who are playing and want to play your music, find a venue, put on a concert, and then you've done the first event, and then you can keep going and growing from there. I hope we all take what Jamie said there at the end to heart, because it's true. He wasn't a conductor until he started conducting. I wasn't a podcaster until I started podcasting. Many of us have goals that seem out of reach, and we look at others who seem to have it all figured out as successful. But at some point, they all had to put their best foot forward try something new, and be willing to fail in order to have the success that they now are experiencing. I think that's going to be all for this episode. I want to thank Jamie Whitmarsh for taking his time to be open about his experiences and be willing to share so much wisdom with us. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating and a review in iTunes and just let me know what you thought. I would also like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering these episodes. And finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We will see you next time. Here is the first movement of the song cycle that Jamie wrote for me entitled Insights. (laughs) 